All right, good morning, Evergreen, and uh, happy Father's Day. And uh, just uh, grateful for our fathers, grateful for being a father. I know just as Pastor Kenny prayed about our fathers, I know my, I just think, as I think to my own dad, although he's not perfect, he's one of the greatest men I've known and definitely helped shape who I am. And I know many of us could say that. And uh, so I'm grateful. A little encouragement for the uh, dads here, uh, current dads. Proverbs 17, 6 says, The glory of children is our fathers. So whatever impact you have, you will have an impact, you know, and whether for positive or negative. And so that's a, that's a high calling. And what a grateful, how grateful I am to have, be part of, to be a father. But um, in honor of the fathers, the church has made a contribution to Bright Vision in Malawi. Bright Vision is, a, is involved with orphan care, development, and discipleship in Africa. So uh, this is what we're doing for the dads here. But um, today we get to see a, a picture, the ultimate picture of manhood in Jesus Christ. And we're going to be out of John chapter 7, uh, 53. So let's rise and as we read God's word here, John 7, 53, you're going to go through uh, chapter 8, verse 11. Okay. Let me just pray before we get into it. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your, the fathers, Lord, that you've given us. Thank you for the opportunity to be fathers, Lord. God, I pray, Lord, that we will ultimately look to you as our ultimate heavenly father, our eternal father. So, God, I just pray, praise you and thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to preach and teach your Bible. I pray, Lord, through the preaching of your word, we will know your son Jesus more and love him more. So thank you, Father, for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's John uh, 7, verse 53. Everyone went to his home, the Bible says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. The Bible says, in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this test to him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he strained up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Straining up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord, no one, Lord. And, G and Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. God, help us to understand what you're saying. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. I have to start off a little bit with a disclaimer here before we get into the sermon. So in my Bible... There are brackets in my John 7:53 to John 8:11. Okay, and I looked at the asterisk. What does this uh, what does this bracket have and perhaps you have brackets in your Bible, your devices. And I want to take some time to address this issue. Okay? And uh, 
The, many scholars believe that this portion of John 8 is not part of the original text in John. And why do scholars believe this? As they study the older manuscripts, manuscripts are handwritten copies of the Bible. Okay, as they study older and older manuscripts, many of these manuscripts, copies, do not have this. And so this is where there's a dilemma here. Okay, how do we treat this? Where, where do we go with this? Do I even preach this, right? But uh, and there's another question that comes into mind. Uh, how do you feel sitting there looking at your Bibles in 2018? Does this lower your confidence in what you have in your hand as being God's word or increase your confidence? And I want to offer this up. Just like Jesus is the most polarizing character okay, in the history of the world, absolutely bar none, the Bible has been the most scrutinized and examined book in history of the, of the world as, as well. And you've had scholars uh, studying this, believers and unbelievers. And I think this is a positive thing. I think this is a good thing. Okay? And, and as, uh, because the, the parts that are bracketed, there may be some questions whether it was in the original text. But 99.999% is not bracketed. Therefore, you sh- we should have greater confidence knowing, man, this has been tested. 99.999% of the Bible is for sure in the original text. And why do we feel this way is this. They've done manuscript studies, okay? And Norman Geisler, an apologist, Christian apologist, writes this. The most documented ancient secular work, secular work is Homer's Iliad, talking about the Greek wars, okay? And surviving in 643 manuscript copies. So there's 643 ancient copies of Homer and Iliad. But look at, look at the, the contrast. Com- counting Greek copies alone, the New Testament text, the Greek, the original language, the New Testament text is preserved in some 5,686 co- partial and complete manuscript portions that were copied by hand from the second, even possibly the first century through the 15th century. And as they studied these thousands of copies, Okay, they're in copy. Uh, they're uh, co- comparing the, the words. Ninety nine percent from the what you have in your hand to the first century, and these five thousand copies are in exact the same. Now, even those that that one percent, what are they? What was the differences? Differences of spelling, issues of spelling, use of synonyms, punctuation did not have any effect or any issues with the uh with the uh, with any major theology any major doctrine that we put our hope in so the stringent examination of the biblical text should lead us to having greater confidence in what you actually have in your hands today this is it's a blessing and um now how do we actually handle this okay pastor rocky how do we actually handle this text do, are you even going to preach it yes we're going to preach it and this is this this is some of the reasons why I actually have, I'm under the opinion that this event with this adulterous woman actually happened. Why do I think that? Papias, John's, the Apostle John's disciple, okay, the, the man who wrote the Gospel of John, had a uh, disciple, a man named Papias from the first century, and he writes about this in his recordings, his writings. He writes about this incident. Therefore, I believe that John spoke to him about this as he was discipling him, and I believe this is profitable because we get another view of our Lord. And, and this, this affirms what we already know about Christ from the rest of the scriptures. Okay, there's no contradiction. This is exactly how you know and how I know our Lord to be. 
Okay, it is very consistent with the character of Christ. However, as profitable as it is, we, we will not form any new doctrines or any new practices based solely on John 8, 1 through 11. Okay, we know this. However, this just simply affirms what we already know of our Lord. Okay, so this is how, this is how we're going to approach this text. I think it's very profitable. Going to the text now. Verse 1, Jesus, as everyone, in verse 53, everyone went to his home at night. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. And this is a picture of what the Mount of Olives looks like. So on the top left, you see the Temple Mount. You see that wall? That's where the temple sat. And that ravine is called the Kidron Valley. So Jesus must have walked out off of the Temple Mount, down the Kidron Valley, up to the other side, to the Mount of Olives. So, and when they say Mount of Olives, this is not like Mount Baldy or anything like that. This is a hill more of a hill okay so jesus was there and as he looks back towards the temple mount because he bible says he comes back early in the morning this is the view that he saw okay this is the view that i saw actually uh looking back towards jerusalem into the old city the, right there is a the temple mount you can see it clearly and the golden dome is a, a, a islamic uh shrine and there's a mosque also to the left of that where that golden dome is called the dome of the rock that this is where the holy of holies this is where the temple sat at one time so going to the next picture this is the view that jesus would have had in his time this is the temple with the walls around it and that building is the temple and that's where the holy of holies the ark of the covenant was this is where this is at where that golden dome is located today Okay, and so the scene of what happens here is really located in either one of the two courts, the court of Gentiles, either on the left or the right of the temple site uh, over the Holy of Holies is. Okay, so this is where, this is the stage where Jesus is teaching. This is where the stage where the crowd is gathering around him. This is the stage where these, where these scribes and the Pharisees will bring an adulterous woman uh, to test Jesus. Okay, so in verse 3, the adulterous woman is brought to the center where this court of Gentiles where Jesus was teaching. There was a crowd. They, uh, these religious rulers understood this. They knew exactly what they're doing. Okay, verse 4. I want, I want to just zero on verse 4 a little bit. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. All right? In the very act, the Bible says, in the very act. Now, how does this even happen? This is way before cameras and, and videotapes and recordings and all this stuff. That means somebody, multiple people had to have seen what was going on in the very act. I mean, this, this sounds exactly like a trap. This is, do I think this is planned? It sure sounds like it to me. How do you catch people in the very act? Multiple witnesses are required to see firsthand to, in order to bring someone to this type of charge. And also, it takes two, right? We know this. We understand this, right? It takes two. Where's the man? Where's the man in the text? There's no mention of a, a man, just a woman. And, and, I mean, minimally, okay, minimally, as, I, as you think through this, minimally, either this man just ran away and they allowed him to escape, okay, minimally. Maybe he's, he's super athletic, he got away, you know? At worst, though, at worst, which could be the case, this man was a part of a trap, Okay, part of the plot to have the bait for, to, uh, to trap Jesus. Minimally, he got away and they let him get away. At worst case scenario, this man was part of the plot. Now, this is total hypocrisy dripping in this whole scenario here. Absolutely dripping in what's going on here. And they said, shouldn't, according to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 22, it does talk about stoning people who are, who are, who are caught in adultery. 
But I don't, these people are not worried about justice. This is not what they're after here. This is clearly not what it's after. In verse 6, it says, it says they were saying this to test him. They're trying to trap Jesus. And they thought they had Jesus uh, uh, caught in a pickle. Does Jesus condemn or not condemn? This is the issue here. This is, this is, the, this is the dilemma as they bring this woman caught in adultery. Because if Jesus does not condemn this woman, basically Jesus will be violating the law of Moses. Okay, therefore making him a lawless man. And then they, therefore they being be able to bring cases, charges against him. Why do you follow him? He's, this, this man's a false prophet. He's a lawless person. Or if he does condemn them to stone this woman, this will violate Jesus' pattern of compassion. This has been his pattern, saving people, having mercy, being gracious to people, especially known sinners, okay? And this all, he also would have violated the, uh, the civic Roman law, which, which capital punishment was only through the Romans. Okay, so they, they, had, they thought they had Jesus, you know. And what does Jesus do? He starts writing on the ground, it says. What does he write on the ground? Who knows? Perhaps he's writing the sins of the men that are, are accusing this lady. Perhaps. I, we don't really know. We don't really know. But the riddle in this whole, whole account is this. How would the holy God be able to exercise mercy with this sinful act? How would he? How would God actually be justifiably just in allowing this woman to be forgiven. And Jesus, you know, they said they keep persisting. They keep persisting as he's writing in, in the ground. And, and Jesus says, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. If you're sinless, even if you're sinless in this event, you could be the first one to throw a stone at her. And then the second time, Jesus stoops down and starts writing again. Why? Why does he do that? I think our Lord gives these men space for them to look within. Look within their hearts. And in verse 9, it says they left. They were convicted. Okay, in verse 9, it says, And they heard it, and they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. The older ones leave. Why? Perhaps probably because they're wiser. Because they know their sinful conditions. They know what Jesus is getting at a lot sooner. And then the younger ones leave as well. Jesus exposed, completely exposes their motives. And as these men were trying to use this woman to further agenda to secure their power, their religious power, this is exactly what worldly leadership looks like. This is what exactly worldly manhood looks like. You use people to get what you want. And these rulers and Pharisees are showing exactly that. This is exactly what worldly manhood looks like. This is exactly how we do not want to be brothers. Brothers, let's just keep looking towards Christ as he is the ultimate example of manhood. Jesus is the ultimate man. In this scenario, that he shows us exactly what this looks like. Real men, godly men, biblical men, leaders, we meet the needs of those around us. We don't use people. We meet their needs around us. This is what men do. This is what leaders of the families do. This is what leaders of our communities do. This is what leaders of our church here at Evergreen SGV are called to do. This is what leaders do. Now keep in mind, just to kind of demonstrate the bandwidth of our Lord Jesus Christ, just this is the same site, this court, this court of Gentiles where Jesus was running out these 
these money traders and these, and, and, and these, these he called, you're making my father's house a den of thieves. He got a whip together and started whipping these people into shape and driving them out. I don't think our Lord was a very calm person in this moment. I think he had holy rage, controlled rage without sinning. That just shows you the intensity of our Lord to drive out hundreds and thousands of people by himself. And here in this scenario, a woman is put before him and he just simply, most of the time, remains quiet and starts writing on the ground. I mean, just like as we sung, Jesus is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. Our Lord has an incredible bandwidth. Obviously, he gives us a picture of what biblical manhood looks like. And the, Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, were, they're exploiting people. Okay? They're about self-preservation. They're exploiting. And Jesus is the one who's protecting, restoring this woman. So you get a good picture of what it looks like. Seeing this, okay, seeing this, I believe the apostle John was there watching all this happening. Okay, Jesus is teaching. They brought this woman. Like, whoa, what is our Lord going to do right now? He's caught in the quandary. He sees how our Lord responds. It's no wonder John spoke to Papias about this. Hey, Papias, man, guess what? You know, he's discipling him. And he goes, this is what our Lord did in this instance. There's no doubt. We'd share the same thing, too, if we saw that. If you were John... How could you not get captured by someone like this? How could you not get enthralled and just amazed at the person of Jesus Christ? How could you not? So as we dig into the scriptures, we see him. If he was walking amongst us today at Evergreen SGV, you would want to be his friend. You would definitely want to be his friend. Whether he was God or not, that's my type of guy. I want to be his friend. And John, his whole identity was about this. You know, he's known known in the Gospel of John, he goes, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he writes about himself. That's how he describes himself. Okay? It's about, I'm loved by Jesus. That's my identity. And in verse 10, look what happens here. Straightening up after everybody leaves, the scene is empty from the accusers. I'm sure people are still watching, but the, the accusers are gone. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Not only is Jesus the ultimate man, Jesus shows that he is God. Because in this very next line here, he shows that he has the authority to forgive sins. Verse 11, it says this, She said, no one, Lord. He calls, her, he calls him Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. She calls him Lord. She takes on that identity. Jesus, you're my Lord. You are my identity now, my Lord. Now look at what Jesus says here in verse 11. I do not condemn you either. She's forgiven. She's forgiven. Now how do we answer that riddle here? The riddle, how would the holy God be able to exercise mercy with this sinful act? Well, the answer is, it's clearly written as I was studying Romans 3, 23 to 26. I want you to go home and read that. Romans 3, 23 to 26. Dig into that scripture. Okay, but in 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21 it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin. God the Father treated Jesus like the worst of us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Because of Jesus is death. God was justified in forgiving this woman. God is justified in forgiving you and me. See, the gospel, 
this is the gospel lived out here, guys, in this uh, John 8. That's why we don't have a problem preaching this. This is gospel lived out. This is how we're called to live out. The gospel has the power to save. The gospel has the power to save. He's basically saying to this woman, I don't condemn you anymore. You are no longer, you are no longer identified in your sinfulness, my woman. You're free from the death penalty of sin. You don't need to carry your shame around because I'm sure people let her know the, the type shameful person that she was. Your sin is no longer your identity. No worldly tags you no longer have to carry with you. In other words, your man in your life, the relationships in your life, no longer are your identity. The degrees, your job that you have, the successes that you had, the disappointments you've had professionally, the ministry that you're involved with in Christian ministry is no longer your identity. These things may describe you, but these things are no longer your identity. The job, the family that you have or don't have no longer have to be your identity. Whether you're a father or you're not a father, whether you have a good dad or a bad dad, whether you have a dad, you don't even have, never knew your dad, those, those things are no longer your identity. He's telling this woman. Your ethnicity is no longer your identity. This woman is not free. Jesus frees her. But look right here in verse, uh, at, at, at verse 11 at the end. He goes, go. What is it? He doesn't just say go, period, end of the story. Go from now on, sin no more. Jesus commands her to go and to sin no more. He calls her to live a sanctified, holy life. See, the gospel not only has the power to save, but the gospel has the power to sanctify. What does sanctification mean, sanctify mean? We're talking about holiness, becoming more like Christ. Jesus was a sinless one. When he says, go and sin no more, do you think this woman actually was sinless after that? Absolutely not. You know, how many of us have been sinless upon conversion? None of us. So Jesus is calling her to live a sanctified life, holiness. This is the, this is the, these are, there are three major events in the life of a Christian. Justification which means that you are innocent, declared innocent before God. You're no longer going to uh, burn in eternal hell. You are in God's family, justified. Justified, never sinned. And then there's glorification, which is our eternal state. When we are in heaven someday, we're free from our flesh in this sinful world. And sandwiched right in between is sanctification. This is the painful process that costs us absolutely everything to be, live a holy life. That's what we're called to do in the spaces in between step one and step three. There's a big step called step two, sanctification. Justification costs us absolutely nothing. By God's grace, it's a free gift. We've been justified as innocent. But sanctification costs us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, absolutely everything. We're called to die to ourselves. We're called to put our sinful impulses away and to follow Christ. Go and sin no more, Jesus says. We're called to live holy. Now, you see these men, these men walked away from this lady Convicted, feeling sad, perhaps, kind of maybe embarrassed. But they still left unforgiven. They just left convicted. Perhaps even if you are a Christian today, do you have sin in your life right now that you need to repent of? The good news says that you no longer have to hold on to that. 
You don't have to have shame with that. This, this sin no longer has to have power over you. First step is repenting. God, I agree. I'm struggling in this sin. I have an issue. Take it up to the Lord. Do business with God today before even leaving this, this building. Crucify the sin you're dealing with by repenting. That's a beautiful thing. Repentance is what God gives us. And let us, as a church, let's, let's pursue holiness. This is what we're called to do. We're called to live as Christ, holiness. This is the aim as your pastor, that you love Jesus and you become more like Jesus. This is the goal of our church and the church leadership. Now, going back to this woman here, do you think that the terror of getting stoned to death helped bringing her to repentance? I mean, this doesn't sound like a funny event by any means. This is a horrific thing. There's a lot of injustices. She, I mean, she, she's culpable of her own sin. This is embarrassing. What if arson was just broadcasted out there like that, okay, on social media or whatever? This is not a fun thing. And not only that, there are people lock and load her, ready to throw a bunch of stones at her and, and kill her. Do you think this helped her to bring to repentance? You bet it did. You absolutely bet it did. She understood her sinfulness. She understood the, the, the penalty of the sin that she was living with. And she was on the brink of not just dying, but spending eternity in hell. She knew this. She did not have to be convinced of her depravity or her wretchedness. In my experience in evangelism, preaching in the prisons are, feels a lot easier sometimes than preaching in the churches. I don't have to convince any of the prisoners that they are sinners. And this woman had, did not have any of those issues. She understood very well what her issues was, issues were. But look at our Lord. Jesus steps in and rescues her. And someday on the cross, Jesus will take all the stones that are targeted at her and take them on the cross someday. And as he hung on that cross, this is how the Father was justifiably able to forgive you and me, forgive this woman from her sin. This is exactly the gospel. That's why there is this, this part of John 8 is very profitable. This is exactly what we're called to live as. This is the gospel lived out. Let me finish off with the testimony, um, testimony of the Father's heart. Uh, over a week ago, I had one of the great privileges of my life. And uh, what happened was uh, I was asked by a friend to do her mother's funeral. Mrs. Izumi is her name, is Izumi-san. And who, who is Izumi-san? Izumi-san is my mom's friend. You know, and my mom's an Issei. This is an Issei woman. So when you're Issei, you hang out with other Isseis, and, other, and you hang out, your Issei's kids hang out with each other. That's how it is. I remember being in their kitchen, eating her food, kind of running around in the living room. This, is, this was me growing up. And last Thursday, not, I mean two Thursdays ago, I had um, our oldest, Kehlani, our youngest, Timothy, with me because they were done with school. The others were still in school. And I just felt like the Lord wanted me to go visit Mrs. Izumi in Torrance. Although she lived in Monterey Park, of Orange, they lived in, a, her hospice was in, in um, Torrance. And I explained to him what hospice is. Oh, this is a place where as people draw near to the end, this is a place where they make them as comfortable as possible. And I just want, just come with me, all right? Just kids, come with me. And as the only thing is, is just watch your papa, just watch me, and just pray. That's all you have to do. You don't have to say a word. Just watch me and pray. And I wasn't sure of her spiritual condition, so as we got to uh, Torrance, you know, I was just 
definitely I was in my <laughs> evangelistic mode here. And I said, hi, Mrs. Izumi. And she, she had her eyes closed and she opened her eyes and she was clear as, be- as a bell. She was there. The last time I, I visited her, maybe a week prior, she, she wasn't really there. She was tired and out of it. This time it's completely clear as can be. And I said, Oboite Maska? Like, do you remember me? This is Haruki. This, this is Haruki. This is my Japanese name. This is how would she know me? And is Emiko no Nibame this? This I'm Emiko's second. And, I, she, and she looked at me and goes, oh, Yeah, of course I remember you. Oboite Maska, I know you. And so as I, as I was just talking to her, and I, I tried to explain the gospel with her, and I said, tried to explain to her who Jesus is in, in a way that she couldn't understand. I said, Jesus, what? He said, Jesus is your creator God. Jesus is the creator God of everything. He's created everything. And I was trying to explain this to her. And I said, Jesus, Taskete. I just, just try to encourage her, just cry out to Jesus, rescue me. Taskete, rescue me. All right? And I just try to encourage her, if you simply believe, you have absolutely nothing to worry about. Shinnemo shinpai shinaida. So you don't, even when you die, you have nothing to worry about. And th- at this point, with tears in her eyes, she was crying. She says, "Omoteru." I said, "What did you say?" I just wanted to make sure. She's "Omoteru, omoteru." She says, "I believe. I believe." From that point on, I, I, I proceeded to grab her hand, which. A little different. I never grabbed her hand before. It's kind of easy that you don't, like, you know, that's kind of different. But, but I went from evangelism, my evangelism mode to my discipleship mode right there. So how can I help this sister here now? How can I encourage this sister in this moment? What does she need to hear right now? As I grabbed her hand, I just kind of knelt by her bedside. I tried to pour into her identity in Christ now. And said, even if you die, you have nothing to worry about now because of Jesus. Your death, your, your, any issues, any regrets, anything that's happened in your life, none of that matters. Now, Jesus is the one that matters. Jesus is the one that's going to see you through this. Her identity is no longer in all those things. It's about Christ now. And that's what discipleship is. As we're trying to grow each other and help each other grow in the Lord, to love the Lord, it's constantly telling each other, reminding each other who we are in Christ. We're no longer our old selves. And then it escalated as I grabbed both hands. You know, I, I ended up grabbing both hands. Somehow they made it to my face. And then she's touching my face. I mean, this, I mean think about this. Culture at this point doesn't matter. Any, any rituals or any uh, proper wording, uh, certain, certain uh, ways, none of that matters at this point, right? I'm just talking to a dear sister at this point. And I just, you know, just my fashion sometimes, crack a joke, I said, I'm sorry I didn't shave, you know, it felt like, just like, like sandpaper, right? I mean, I could, it's already coming back, I can feel it right now. But I didn't shave. I didn't shave. And she was like, no, oh, it's okay. Daijoubo, She's, it's okay. It's okay. We had a little laugh, a little smile. She came from her. And then I made Timothy, our youngest, kind of sit, uh, stand in between us. And then her hands went to her, his face. And she goes, Yawarakai. Like, so soft, right? And I was thinking to myself, I thought this to myself. I was like, I'm glad that's the last. Like, she gets to touch that instead of remembering my sandpapered, like, face, you know. And uh, that's just a very tender moment. 
This is a very human moment. In the Christian life, it's very human. The body of Christ, there's a human side to our Lord, our Christ, the one that we worship, the one that we love. Three days later, Mrs. Izumi passed away. A week ago from today, matter of fact. In this moment, someday all of us are going to be in this moment, sooner or later. We're going to be in this moment. And in that moment, just like in that moment in Torrance, nothing else is going to matter. Our hearts are going to be screaming, all I have is Christ. Nothing else matters. Now going back to the woman from John 8. She was a sinner. We understand this. But there, so were the rulers that came, the religious rulers. There were a bunch of sinners in that court, okay? Everyone but Jesus were sinners. But there's only two camps that we're a part of, okay? That, that, those, that group, the woman and the, and the religious rulers represented two camps. Sinners who are forgiven and sinners who are not forgiven, who are going to spend eternity in hell. There's only two camps, one of two camps. We want to be like this woman who left forgiven, we want to be like this one who was broken and just cried out to Christ, rescue me, Jesus. We don't want to be simply convicted, feel bad, and a little bit awkward and just leave. We don't want to be like that, prideful, arrogant. You don't want to leave today if you're not in Christ, leaving these doors without knowing you are saved. One left absolutely forgiven and restored to life. The other simply just walked away sad without forgiveness. You want to be like this woman. And if you're a Christian today and you have sin in your life, you need to repent. We're called to holiness. You're fooling nobody but yourself. The Lord knows everything. But if you truly believe the gospel, it's a glorious thing when you repent because you know you're forgiven. There's absolute, you have no reason to shame on any, at any level. So let's pray right now. As we, uh, I'm just going to pray for those right now in our church. Who, are, who do love the Lord. I pray for encouragement. But also, as you sit there, ask the Lord to bring somebody to mind that you, you would like to see to come to know the Lord. Perhaps it's your father. Perhaps it's your children. Think, pray, and ask God to bring somebody to mind right now. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will bring to mind somebody, some people in our minds right now, that we could intercede for right now who need to come to know you as Lord and Savior. Perhaps it's someone you've been discipling or, or evangelizing or some, perhaps somebody you just met. God, I pray for that they will pray for, on their behalf right now. So Father, God, I just thank you for the saints in here. I pray, Lord, that the saints in here will desire holiness, desire sanctification to become more like your son, Jesus. Father, I pray for those saints in here that we would just constantly be repenting to you, Lord, of our sin and repenting to each other as we pursue community and, and unity in the body. Father, I pray for those in here right now who do not know you that they will be burned in their hearts, that they have to come out and cry out to you, Jesus, rescue me. I believe that you are God and that you died for my sins and three days later rose again. And I believe that you are Lord. So Holy Spirit, do a work in their hearts right now so they will cry out to you and cry out to you, Jesus, as Lord. And save these, be gracious to these as you were to this woman over 2,000 years ago. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being your people. 
Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.